fish and chips out on a windy day on Brighton Beach, you know, in November, wrapped up warm, is equally as magical as eating in a three Michelin star restaurant anywhere in the world. Hello and welcome to the Country Life podcast. Uh, I'm James Fisher. I'm your host. And today we have an extremely special guest with us. He has three Michelin stars. He is the star of many, many cooking shows on TV. Welcome to Mr. Tom Kerridge. Thank you very much, Chief. That's very, very kind of you. I, I just need to point out the three Michelin stars are over two spaces, all right? So it's yeah. not like, not three stars like Gordon. That's proper three stars. <laughs> Do you ever think uh, you'd like to go for the full three stars? No, I think we're very, very comfortable trying to do what we do. I mean, the pressure of two stars is, is, is weighs pretty heavy, to be honest, is that, you know, the only pub to have two stars at the minute. And there's many out there that, are, you know, I, I firmly believe are, are there and, you know, a, a wonderful food and great cooking. So, you know, it's a real lovely reflection of the British food scene. But three stars is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it must be a heavy weight to weigh upon, you know, heavy is that crime, I think. Very good. Well, we'll come back to uh, all things stars a bit later, but if we can start at the beginning, can you tell us a bit about your childhood growing up in Gloucestershire and sort of how that inspired you to get into cooking? Yeah, I mean, I grew up um, in the centre of Gloucester, um, single parent family. It was my mum and dad split up when I was about 11. Um, and uh, we grew up on an estate in Glossom, myself and my brother, and it was my mum who had two jobs. So she worked for the council during the day and then she washed up in a pub in the evening. And I think um, I was, we were what known, it was known back in the 80s as latchkey kids. So like I would go home and after school and I'll cook my brother and myself tea. And by that, I think it would probably, uh, I mean, like Finders crispy pancakes or bird's eye potato waffles, a tin of beef ravioli you know those kind of things but but that was kind of the first point of cooking i think it was the first point of um the realization of doing something practical with an end result that was actually you could alter and change and i think that was the first point because the education system for me wasn't always i mean i wasn't the naughtiest boy at school but it was just that i, I didn't really click into it i bit you know I, I wasn't a troublemaker but i liked to hang around with them so it kind of, like, I wasn't concentrating. It wasn't always my yeah. thing. Um, so it was the first sense, I think, as a teenager of going, actually, the practicality of doing something, there's an end result. And doing something with your hands, physically being involved in something rather than just sitting in a lesson and remembering things, suddenly became the realisation that life is, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to just remembering stuff. Yeah. And I think that was the first realisation of going actually you know there's something out there for me and I wasn't quite sure what wasn't necessarily cooking but I always remember as well my mum was um our house was the one house with it like it had a little garage at the back and then there was a little kind of like on the estate there was a little brook and a river no brook tiny little thing with a bridge on it and that's where you'd all hang out as teenagers but it was always like round our house so it was that sense of um hospitality that i think my mum gave like to everybody else's parents they knew it was all all right my mum said she'd always make everyone a cup of tea or would always always have biscuits for people or would always like on a sunday lunchtime you know we'd go to rugby training and come back she'd always done a few extra roast potatoes and things in case we brought someone back so i think that sense of connecting to people and being through 
food. I think that was the first point of me going, actually, this might be something. I, I look back at it. I look back at it now in retrospective point of view and go, actually, then maybe that's where that came across. Yeah. You talk about uh, Sunday lunch there, um, which sort of brings us on. You've got a new TV show coming out in the new year called More Sunday Lunch, which is on the uh, Food Network from January 15th. Yeah. Uh, what is it about Sunday lunch? Like, what is it about the British obsession with Sunday lunch? What makes it so special? Do you know, I think it's the fact um the majority of the country are off work. I mean, unless you're, you know, in hospitality or in the service yeah. industry, but I say like, you know, 80% of the country are off work on a Sunday. So it's that kind of space and time where you've got an opportunity to ha have a chance at cooking a bit or going out or connecting with family and friends. And there is much more of a relaxed, chilled vibe about Sundays. It's not just... And um, it's not just about it being uh, Saturday night. You might meet friends and family, but it's always a bit more serious. You know, and Saturday night, yeah. is a, there's also a time scale on a Saturday night. You know, at some point you've got to go to bed. Sunday lunch is actually, but if it's delayed by it, or it doesn't really matter. You know, you can keep going and you can still, like, you, you can still be out at someone's house no matter how long it is, like by seven o'clock in the evening. It's like, there's no, <laughs> there's no real stress about the day. Do you know what I mean? It's a lot more yeah. chill and a lot of something that's exciting something that's slower cooked, something that's enjoyable, something that makes the house smell nice. So, and I think that that connection on a Sunday is really, really important. Yeah, no, I'd absolutely agree. I mean, I, I think it's probably my uh, favourite meal of the week. There's nothing nothing quite like sort of waking up with a little bit of sort of red eyes on a Sunday morning after a few few drinks with my mates on Saturday and getting that text being like, oh, I've got a table booked for Sunday lunch at four o'clock down the road. Do you fancy it? Oh, what a treat that is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Almost makes the hangover worth it. Almost, not quite, not quite. <laughs> um, would you say Sunday lunch is one of your favourite dishes to cook? What would be your favourite dish to cook? Yeah, no, I do, I definitely. But I, I think what we when we talk about Sunday lunch, I mean, there's a lot more to it now than just like roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. It, it, you know, yeah. we're a wonderfully rich, culturally diverse, um, really exciting food nation that kind of embraces cooking and cookery styles from all over the world. So. You know, Sunday lunches now are much more about connection with each other rather than just the food that you're cooking. You know, it's not it yeah. is beyond. And actually, sometimes the stress of doing a roast dinner or the stress of doing roast beef, you know, making sure there's nice and pink in the middle and all those. Like they, they it sometimes get outweighed by doing slow cooked braises, stews, those sort of things, where actually it means it's a lot more fun and you can enjoy it and enjoy the time spent. Yeah without the pressure of trying to get it 100% right, you try to drive flavour profiles. And I think that makes Sundays much more exciting and fun. I love Sundays. Yeah. No, I think I've just, at the age of 31, I've just about perfected getting that uh, beef joint pink in the middle and juicy. Because, I mean, I remember my <laughs> mid-20s, first few times having a go at it, I would just create some absolutely dry, rubbery log every time. And it was... Yeah. Like, one of the biggest things you could do is invest in a... a digital uh temperature probe they're the best yeah. things because you get you know by the you, you understand and you understand the profiles of cooking there you know and you mm. get um it, it makes it a lot easier you know if, if you've got the equipment there and it exists you may as well use it you know it's not cheating you know yeah. they're all the things that make your life much better and you know we all know that beef or any joint is not cheap so if you've spent the money on it you want to make sure that Actually, you know, you, you're not wasting that money by getting it wrong. You know, 10, 15 quid on a digital thermometer probe can save, save Sunday lunches for years. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, it's 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 you know, I'm not a, I'm not a fantastic chef, but it is one of the two things I tell people, you know, that have changed my relationship to cooking is meat thermometer and good knives. Yeah. I used to think I hated cooking, and actually, what I really hated was bad knives. Yeah, bad equipment. I mean, it's it's and and it could cost an awful lot of money. It really, really can. But actually, if you look after this piece, these pieces of kit, they last with you a lifetime. Yeah. Now, I've got. I've got knives that I've had since I was 18, you know, and, oh, wow. and that's not just the knife that you use, you know, you might use once a week or twice a week at home. This is a knife that's getting used for like 14 hours a day for relentless years upon years upon years. And, it, you know, if you spend the money on it, they can last forever. And I mean, that's, yeah. that, that, you know, worth it. It's worth every single penny. You mentioned uh, sort of, you know, roast roast beef being quite an expensive piece of uh, food. You've come in from some criticism for, I think it was like the £30 fish and chips at Harrods. Do you think we as a country have are obsessed with cheap food? Do you think we are aware yeah. enough of where our food comes from? Listen, I'm only coming to criticism from people who don't understand the price of food and the reality of it. You know, all that. I, I, I get it. Fish and chips, you know, is seen as one of those um, cheap staples. But even for um, back street fish and chip shops in Gloucester, like where I grew up, Boom. you know, fish and chips is now not a cheap. It's not a cheap thing to buy. But you got to remember that a lot of that fish is being used in those. It's, it's over a year old. It's caught. Oh wow! At sea, prepped at sea, block frozen. You know, it's just, it, it's those sort of things that have just sat there. You know, the the Actually, if you, and then you know what we do, um, where we get the price has been criticised is, is from a lack of understanding. If you're using day boat grill, that you know, and you're using incredible potatoes, and you've got skilled people cooking it, it's only the same as doing it in a restaurant. Just because we yeah. put it in batter and put it fire, doesn't mean the the quality of the ingredient. It's it's an understanding of the quality of ingredient, and that's all, you know. Yeah. And it's fine. I, I've got broad shoulders. I can take that criticism of people, you know, people that do understand and understand food is absolutely fine. But I also get, you know, we we are a nation that the question we've got to ask is why is food so cheap? And yeah. our food process, our food system is being so undermined and so destroyed, and you know, and it goes that it goes all the way. I mean, this is, you know, this is. A conversation we're having here for country life. Now, country life is one of the things yeah. it's been mostly exposed as farming. It's farming and it's agriculture and it's the lives of people that producers and suppliers that fight the elements of the weather and the yeah. outdoors are a constant battle against producing food that then gets squeezed on price and they all get squeezed on Now, they get squeezed on price not just because it's from the bad guys, the supermarkets. It's actually not. It's the yeah. consumers that are demanding it from supermarkets into but it's us as a nation or as a as a global consumer yeah, that yeah. is putting pressure pricing that we have to understand that good food, any food, is a process. It's not just something you don't manufacture it. It's not like plastic. Yeah. Something that takes ages to produce and grow and done well, you know. If you if you look at it single crop farming as opposed to a multi crop farming, multi crop farming is the right way to do it. Looking after soils, looking after the future of the land, yeah. producing food full of nutrients and vitamin rich. Actually, if we destroy that and just try to mass produce stuff out of fields, so all of this, yes, it does bring the price down, but actually it ruins 
the land. Yeah. It's not actually great produce. It's not, you know, it's it, it, all of those sort of things are, we de- it's a lack of understanding. And But I get that, it, you know, it, I, I understand why would people want to understand farming if their job, if they're a single parent who lives in a high rise somewhere and, you know, they're trying to get, just trying to get through life. That's it. I get it. Yeah. yeah. But we do, we do as a nation, I think, um, have to be and manage in our expectations a little more um, about um, produce and food and start asking the question, why is food so cheap? Yeah. Not why is, like, if you can buy from a mainstream, very, very well-known burger operator, a burger for 99p, if you can buy that for less than a pound and they make global profits of billions... What on earth is that burger cost? How cheap is that? And how is that produced? You've got, you have to ask those questions. That that's a piece of beef, it's bread, it's lettuce, it's gherkins, it's whatever. All of that, and you can get it for less than a pound, and that company still make profit. There has to be something wrong somewhere. Um, so going back again to uh, the start, you trained under a, a variety of chefs while you were sort of. Starting out, which one would you say inspired you the most? Oh, there's so many. I've been so lucky that there's been loads of different cooks um, and people. I I think spending time with Gary Rhodes was really really important for me. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think uh, um, Gary was a really amazing chef in terms of his ability to showcase British produce. Yeah, um, cooked really well, simply strong remove the faff of ingredients and just focus on quality-led produce. So I think Gary was probably one of the most influential cooks on my career, definitely, yeah. Very good. And then in 2005 was the big moment of setting up the hand and flowers. What's it like setting up your own restaurant? Yeah, I mean, I was 30, 31 years old and it's like quite a terrifying, you know, it was quite a big thing mm. to go ahead and do. And I... And I look back at it now and I've got 31 year olds that work for me and I think, my God, I, I can't ever imagine being that person of setting up a business at that age. Like, I just can't imagine. I, don't, I it must have been with ridiculous naivety and stupidity that I did it. But it was kind of like we, we, we you know, we, we maxed out on um, credit cards. We, we told a few like uh, white lies to the bank about yeah. what we were spending the money on. We did, like all of those sort of things that you do, you scrape and beg and steal and borrow and you know, you make things up and you absolutely chance it and blag it. And it's worked. And it's worked through graft and hard work and commitment and determination of a huge amount of people that are trying to get a business working. Yeah. So it, it's it's great, but it was also terrifying. And I look back at it and think, I mean, it's amazing. But every day I still feel sick to my stomach that, it's you know, it's not working. It's a nightmare. How do we, you know, all of, the, all of those things are very, very difficult to deal with that they're, they're high pressure yeah. it's high pressure and nobody who ever runs a business ever feels comfortable yeah ever it doesn't matter how successful it is you never ever feel comfortable but that that makes it sound like it's the worst thing ever and it's not it's the best because every decision i make in my own hands but you know if you're looking for a comfortable life i i would don't don't open your own business don't, yeah, don't start a restaurant okay Got yeah it. <laughs> um i think we sort of see a lot of uh this is sort of two questions in one, if we, if you will. You know, we've seen TV shows like The Bear and films and also now TV shows such as Boiling Point, you know, sort of showing the 
the sort of crazy environment of working in high-end cooking are those how accurate are those tv shows what is that what it's sort of really like to work in the kitchen uh yes and no i mean it can be boiling point so not just the series but the original movie now all of those situations that happened in that movie i i've seen every single one yeah and like and if it's happened but not all on one night like that's the worst <laughs> service ever i've seen i've seen all of those things happen yeah. over a 30-year career you know what i mean that's artistic license yeah, yeah, yeah. that has created an, an, an exciting and and t- intense and very tense thing to watch do you oh, know yeah. what i mean it was like it was like i wanted to pull off my own skin for half of that movie it was oh god yeah it it is really hard right but that's it's not like that every day hospitality is amazing it's brilliant it's the most exciting eclectic diverse brilliant industry to work in you can travel the world you can see so many different things you meet incredible and amazing people there's such fun to be had working in hospitality but there are days when it is under pressure there are days where you've got the checks wrong there are days when you know you you come across people that are dealing with alcohol or uh, gambling or drug issues there are people that where a customer has an allergic reaction to something there are people you know, all of those things happen, but that's like daily life in a really amazing environment. Yeah. But you are having days where you're having loads of fun. You are having days where you're traveling to Hong Kong or Singapore because it, you can and it's great. You're having days where, you know, it, it, it's just, you're meeting passionate people. So they are very, they are very, very true. Yeah. But not all the time. Like they, those, that connection, that excitement, the bear, for example, for me, I think is, is brilliant. I think it's oh, amazing yeah. television. And I think there's parts of it that are so true and so connected to top end cooking or the real real life restaurant um, operations, yeah. where they put on heartstrings um, and they they show you how exciting it is. People's journeys, creative journeys, emotional journeys, learning curves, all of those sort of things, which is what hospitality does. It's a hard working environment where you can achieve stuff every single day. If you again. If you want to just float through life looking for just the easy option, don't join hospitality. But if you want to have, if you want to live life and really enjoy it and go through expanding your horizons and building yourself and grabbing experiences that are presented in front of you, there isn't a better industry to do it than hospitality. Is it a case now with yourself, you know, without blowing too much smoke up your backside, you know, you've You've become a very established chef. You've got a very good career on TV. You've got multiple restaurants. I believe you're opening a new one in Chelsea in a couple of weeks. Is that right? Anna? Yeah, that opened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yeah, two weeks, weeks ago. ago that opened. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. How yeah, much yeah. time are you spending in the kitchen these days? Have you sort of now? Are you now more of a businessman than a chef, or are you still always chef first, business sort of second? So, hand and flowers. Yeah. Uh, too much star space. Nothing. Nothing happens there. Nothing changes there. Nothing occurs without me being a part of it. Yeah. Being in it. That that is the space. That's where we opened nearly nineteen years ago. That's where we cook too much stars, and that's where we drive and maintain it. And that team of people that are there have been with us for years and years and years. But it is that's the heart and soul. Yeah. The other places are very much um, extensions of. They're all run by people that have been within the business for like 10 years plus. So they have that DNA, but they also yeah. are allowed to have a little bit more creativity. Like Sarah is head chef of the coach with the Michelin star. Yeah. She won last year Michelin's Young the Year, you know, and that's a reflection on her. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a reflection on her personality and what she's achieved and what she does. 
So that's really exciting. You know, she creates dishes. They're in our vibe. They're within our DNA and they're within our parameters. Yeah. But they're also her own creative expression. And that's really great. And I love that. I love the fact that, you know, someone's come through the ranks and we've nurtured them to be able to have the confidence to have a go at doing something themselves. And they do it very, very well. Same as Nick at Carriages Bar and Grill, who yeah. opened the coach for us and then opened Carriages Bar and Grill. You know, he's very much his own person. We let him go on. But there are particular DNA structures that they have to be a part of. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to be in the kitchen a lot more. But you're right. We are now on six sites. You know, we have yeah. Carriages Fish and Chips. We have Bar and Grill. We have two butcher's taps, which is the one in Marlow and the one in Chelsea. And they're like steaks and burgers and they're like, you know, metal trays with cones of chips on them. It, it's it's a, about creating a vibe and a sense that you learn as a restaurateur. You know, as a, I've moved from a young chef as an 18-year-old, mm-hmm. a kitchen porter as an 18-year-old, all the way through to restaurateur now. And, you know, it's still very much my, the beating heart, the soul, the hands are still chef, but actually to, to make the business work, to allow staff, personal and professional growth is always about now being a restaurateur. Um, and as yeah, as well as restaurateur, obviously, you've been on the telly quite a lot recently. What's it what's it like sort of translating from running a restaurant to, you know, being on Master Chef and various other bits and pieces? Yeah, I mean, I very much enjoy the world of television and behind the scenes. I'm not very into I'm I'm not that comfortable with people knowing who I am. I'm not I'm not, I, I didn't go into this being to be famous. It wasn't something that I necessarily, I wasn't looking for that. It's, yeah. You know, it's quite nice we're famous for something that you do, you know, and not just for fame's sake. It's, you know, you're famous for um, cooking well. And, yeah. that, and that's good to be recognized. For that. But it's, I, I am slightly uncomfortable when you walk into rooms or go to spaces that there's quite a few people there who would know who you are and you've no idea who they are. You yeah. know, there's quite, I, I, I'm not, I'm not overly comfortable with that, but it's part and parcel of being a restaurateur in the life that we're in. I thoroughly enjoy making TV. You know, it has that world very similar to hospitality. You know, you work hard, you start at the bottom, you graft, you learn, it's a skill, it's a trade, you know, across the board. And it's multifaceted and talented, the world of media, you know, whether it's a camera operator or a man or a production unit or a director or, a, you know, all there's so many different skill sets and everybody has a... a a specific role which is very much like hospitality in the way things work yeah and so i quite enjoy being a part of being in that environment so i enjoy that bit, but i very very rarely watch myself it's because not that i don't i don't i don't watch the end result i don't i don't have that set up on record at home oh okay that's good to hear because I, I sometimes toby the producer sometimes yells at me for not listening back to the podcast because i know i have a sort of similar thing i freaks me out a little bit i mean i love i love meeting all the guests i love chatting to them but then you sort of play it back to yourself and you, I, I don't know it just yeah there's something about it i'm just on that type of person yeah um so we, yeah you spoke about all your sites in uh marlow i mean you're not from marlow what attracted you to the town of marlow well i was in london uh for about 10 plus years so i moved up to the west from the west country up to london and then you know, when we were looking at opening our own business and trying to find the right space and, you know, we knew Marlowe kind of a little bit anyway. We had friends that lived in Henry, so we, we'd occasionally visit them and it was just that wonderful and brilliant demographic. We were looking all the way from North London all the way right around to Surrey. Yeah. So, you know, but when we saw, it was actually when we saw the pub, actually I saw it on the internet, like it was a tenanted site from Green King. 
So when we saw it, it was a case of, I just knew, I just knew it was the right one. It was small enough to be able to be run as a husband and wife, small team. And it was um, perfectly big enough to grow into. And that made it very, you know, it go, okay, this is something that could be really exciting. We can operate it and make it work. Let's go for it. And, yeah. and Marla was so lucky. It's an amazing part of the world. It's wonderful. Like we're right into the heart of the countryside if you want it. Or a short train ride or a journey on the M4 straight into London. So either way, it's connected to both like the cosmopolitan city, yeah. but also if you want to escape the middle of nowhere with rubbish phone service and walk the dogs in the woods, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's also perfect for that. It takes a lot of those boxes and, you know, it's, it's a great part of the world. And it's also wonderfully community-based. You know, it's, it's, it's got great schools, it's got great sports facilities around, and, it you know, it does loads of things on the high street, at Christmas shopping and all of those sorts. Of, like, it's just a really, really wonderful community that is connected People try working really hard to be connected to each other. Mm. And it's got the River Thames, which is, all, you know, it's always nice to be on the river, isn't it? Exactly. It's on the River Thames. It's like a picturesque, beautiful, like, you know, we couldn't want anything more. Picture postcard time. Um, what's the uh, best restaurant you've ever eaten in? I mean, you can say your own restaurant. That is allowed. I, I do respect that kind of a... No, I didn't. To be honest, there's so many, and you know, and you might go, "Oh, this is amazing, and that's amazing." I was very lucky that on my 50th birthday um, this year, we went to a place called Gerard Passida, which is down in Nice. Um, it's a bunch of chefs. We all went down there, and it was amazing. It was just the best. Like it was a, a wonderful three-star restaurant. Yeah. It, it, it just uh, in the centre of Marseille, um, actually. So it was just like, I mean, it was beautiful. But, you know, some of the best food experiences aren't always in top-end restaurants. You know, like some of the best food I've had has been in a back street in Singapore at 3 o'clock in the morning when I was out there doing a cookery showcase. And a load of chefs, when we finished service, went out for something to eat. And it was just, you know, brilliant, brilliant food, connected, sat around a big table on plastic seats eating loads of, like, uh, Singaporean street food, which was magic. The other one is, like, tacos, a really dirty taco shack yeah. somewhere in Tucson in Arizona. yeah. When I was filming something like that, and it was just brilliant. And those are those are the real connections to food, a beautiful flavour, and heart and soul. So it's not always in top end restaurants. You know, it can be you know, food is fish and chips out on a windy day on Brighton Beach. You know, in November, wrapped up warm, is equally as magical as eating in a three Michelin star restaurant anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, when so you know, when I watch a program such as Master Chef or you know something like that you know you always hear about sort of chefs talking about how their dishes as well as you know obviously tasting wonderful as supposed to evoke certain feelings and memories and sort of <laughs> context with them is that sort of i feel that never really translates fantastically well on tv but is that sort of what really high-end cooking is trying to do not only just the food tastes good but it does make you feel like you're having a a fish and chips on a on a stormy day by the seaside or you are having that sort of dirty taco in the hot you know arizona sun you know with chili sauce coming out of your ears that kind of thing yeah i i think every chef cooks for different reasons and different dishes of what they're trying to connect to you know it can be just simply that this ingredient you've got is magic yeah. that it's seeing all on its own or it can be seasonality that reflects that as well but also there's a connection of what your heart and soul and what the purpose of cooking is for you, yeah. each individual chef. Particularly, I think you're cooking at top-end levels. I think each chef is looking for a reason of why they're creating that dish. 
And sometimes it is about childhood memories. Sometimes it is about connecting to people. Sometimes it's just about making people feel comfortable. Yeah. You know, the way I cook, I want people to feel comfortable and I want them to eat food that makes them think um, that they're in safe hands, but it's very, very special. They yeah. recognize all the flavors, but there's no way that they could replicate it. We work very, very hard to be at the top of our and um, what we try to do. And yeah. Sometimes it is about powdered flavors, but most of the time it's about making people feel comfortable. But different chefs will operate in different ways. Sometimes it's about blowing people's mind with flavor combinations, you know, or or just the simplicity, the raw simplicity of things. You know, all of those sort of things are reflected in each chef's different psyche in the way that they cook. So going back to Michelin stars, which is what we started off with, I would like to know what's it, what's it like a, getting your first Michelin star or first two Michelin stars? And what's it like keeping them i mean like do you know what a michelin star inspector looks like do you know when they're coming to visit or are you sort of constantly on guard that one's going to walk through the door and then it's sort of all hands on deck you know i think i remember this the old new york times food critic in the 90s you know every restaurant in the city had a picture picture of him and a code word so they could spot when he was walking around so they knew to be on their absolute a game because you know a good review from him would either open or close your business is that sort of similar with the Michelin Guide? Yeah. I what The great thing about the Michelin Guide is that you never know when they're coming. Yeah. You don't know who they are. That every now and then they might announce once they've eaten, say that they're from the Michelin Guide. But the majority, like the majority of the time, you know nothing about it until the guide comes out yeah. um, every year. And that's it. You're, you're kind of left in this limbo land, which is amazing because it does mean that there's this you just have to be consistent the one thing that i can tell you about the mission guide i don't know a great deal about it in terms of what they're looking for yeah but i can tell you the one thing they look for is consistency and that's always the same you've got to be as good on a monday lunchtime as you have on a saturday night there's no point in you know you have to be yeah <laughs> all the time has to be top end. and then it's about it is genuinely about the food and genuinely about the celebration of the produce i think the difference between one and two stars is the fact that when you come to two star level i think you could if you put 20, there's about 22 two Michelin star restaurants. Yeah. If you put a main court with every 22 Michelin star chefs in front of me, I could probably tell you each, which each chef has done each course. Like there is an individual, like, but I think across, it, there's a point of personality that yeah. suddenly flips into two star. And, and, and I, I don't know that that's always true in one star level because you can do great food, but it's trying to eke that personality out of those chefs that flips them into that two-star level. I think that's the difference. So they've got to always be consistent. There's yeah. always got to be great produce. It's always got to be in the right surroundings. Now, by the right surroundings, that doesn't mean like top-end posh, yeah, yeah. but it can be the right surroundings to replicate the food and represent the food. But I think then you you then get to the point where your personality shines through. And they're amazing to win. It's incredible. The pressure, um, you you see, you from a team's point of view it's a, it, outstanding everybody because everybody that's working there has a level of professionalism that they're working towards and yeah. it means that they hit it and that's great that's amazing but the pressure of maintaining them every year is, is very big it's it's huge it's it's a big responsibility you also have to remember that you represent you but you also once you have a mission star you represent the mission guide you're representing yeah. yourself as a mission star chef and that that is also a responsibility that you have to take seriously. Is it? I mean, you talk a lot about the pressure of the of the stars. Do you do you almost think there's too much of a sort of 
a weight on them? Do you think it sort of dictates too much a restaurant's success, or you know, is it a, is it a net positive? I, d- it, I mean, if you don't, I, I, I suppose if you don't want them, you can always tell them you can give them back. I yeah. suppose. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> but you know, it's a great, it's a great, you know, I think it's a great reflection on you, your business, your your restaurant. I think it's amazing for the team, for the staff, for the people that work in it to have that kind of sense of professionalism because it's a profession this yeah. isn't you know this is part of the reason when we talk generally about food being so cheap you also see hospitality as being a profession it's not a profession it's just something that somebody does until they find a proper job yeah, yeah. hold on a minute this is their job and this is a profession and this is a level of something that's recognized globally of being of really good quality someone is working tirelessly tirelessly hard to achieve this level yeah and i think all of those things. So, although they're under pressure, they're very amazing thing to have from a team perspective. They're fantastic. Um, you talk about sort of the hospitality industry. Obviously, the the COVID pandemic in twenty twenty did terrible damage to the hospitality industry. How's it? How's it looking? Sort of on the ground, your end. Is, are things slowly getting back to where they were, or is the industry still really struggling? I, I think the industry is really struggling. I, th- I think it comes up from you have bums on seats people are going out which is great all yeah. of that but we, we we have ongoing issue regarding um cost of living crisis we have huge energy bills that are massive we have a vat that is non-reflective compared to the rest of europe you know it it, it really does push and put pressure hugely on the hospitality industry. we've got the staffing crisis mm-hmm. and i know so many industries are under the same sort of pressure you know particularly farming particularly agriculture it's the same sort of thing you know we it, there are a lot of strains and pressures on the businesses um, across board. So even though it has, um, yeah, there are bums on seats, and now is quite an odd time to be talking about it because it's Christmas, so yeah, everybody yeah. should be busy. But actually, the back end costs that are coming in are huge, and people's spends might not be as much, but the costs of the businesses are a lot, lot more. So I think, yeah, in general, the industry is still hugely under pressure. I think it's going to be a very difficult winter. In- into the early months of next year, I think this time next year that we may well have found quite a few more places having not being here. So what could what could we do as punters to help that? I mean, is it literally just a case of going out a bit more? Yeah, absolutely support the industry. Keep going with the industry. I think um, keep putting pressure on your local MP. Yeah, you know, to let them know that they need to support. We need we need um, we need you know across board actually we need freedom of movement of people yeah we're across europe we need um we need the um vat reduction being a a big thing we need energy bills to be looked at hugely across board for all businesses because it's not just pubs and restaurants and hotels that have got and like it's produced it's farmers producers suppliers yeah. all these people abattoirs it's butchers it's all, you know that's not just they affect hospitality or well, if their energy prices gone up that goes on it's yeah. all a knock-on effect and they're not awesome so it, we we need to put the, the government can help here. It's where they choose to put their help. That's you know those are the questions. So you know if you can, you get an opportunity. You have a chance to speak to somebody in government. Like let them know. And if they're in an if they're in opposition, yeah. let them know as well because it needs to become policy. Yeah, because I mean I think hospitality is one of the one of the great sort of things that the British do very well. It's it's just, in my opinion a source of great national pride. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you're far too sensible to be spending your time on Twitter these days. But um, last week we had 
the sort of discourse we usually have about once or twice a year where uh, someone in America will see a plate of beans on toast and then and then go, oh my God, I can't believe the English actually eat like this. And then everyone gets very upset. Do you think, you know, the sort of British have had a stigma for a while of having very boring, bland food. Do you think that's fair anymore? Or do you think actually we are underrated as a nation for the quality of our cuisine? I think people who know food know that Great Britain is actually one of the most exciting and eclectic, brilliant hubs of, of global cuisine now. You know, yeah, I mean, you just, a prime example is London. It's yeah. one of the most exciting, amazing capital cities in the world, but it has such a varied and diverse, exciting, eclectic mix of not just like brilliant street food and pizza, and um, but also Michelin-style restaurants from globally from around the world, whether it's Peruvian, whether it's, Indian cuisine, whether it's Italian, French, Spanish, you know, there are so many incredible restaurants and Brit and, and a food scene. And that then spreads up and down the country. Some of the best restaurants in the country aren't even in the UK. You look at restaurants Sat Bays, you look at Midsummer House, you look at um Long Gloom, you look at uh, it, there's so many, you know, you go down to Cornwall, they're, they're like it, it is amazing. Yeah. Uh we we are we are we're very fortunate we have four seasons that you know, British produce, it's very, very different. We are one of the, I think people who know food know it's amazing. And I think, you know, in terms of American cuisine, I, I've, I've been very fortunate. I spent a lot of time traveling over America for a Food Network series yeah. and it was it was amazing. It was a brilliant space to understand the sea, but the level of food and the, the it is poor. Yeah. But it's poor because it's so vast. So there's certain areas that have good cuisine because, um, has more European style weather fronts and yeah. systems that work nicely, but there's also, you know, globally that or nationally, you know, the states. If you have a particular type of thing, it's not in the UK. We're very fortunate. You might have a central hub somewhere in uh, the Midlands that then can transport food anywhere around the UK by the end of the day. That yeah, day, yeah. you know, in the state, in the States, you might be on a plane for six hours and then you're still in the States. Yeah. You know, they haven't got the ability. So any food that needs transportation is normally full of preservatives. It's normally processed. It's normally... So the level of cuisine yeah. that is recognized globally or recognized nationally in the, UK, in the States is quite poor. Regionality can be slightly different. The coast of California, for example. Yeah. But in general, it's a very difficult space to work. So I, w I would argue that actually we have the best access to food in this yeah. country. Well, I mean, you're the expert, so I'm going <clears> to <throat> put that down as Britain won USA nil. <laughs> One final question, Tom, if uh, you've got time, and it's just a simple, what would Tom Kerridge now tell Tom Kerridge when he was 18 years old and just starting out? I mean, I wouldn't do a single thing different. I mean, the one thing that I've always been very fortunate with is a work ethic. And those are the things that you need to do. Like, never, ever give up. Have a work ethic. Stick on it. Keep pushing. Keep going. So I, I like, there isn't a single thing I would change. You know, there's not. And they're all life experiences. Even things that go wrong. Yeah. You know, even things that you think aren't. Or you learn from them. There's, take Take risks. Jump on it. Have a go at stuff. Do things because they're not that you learn from them. They're learning curves. They're things that are um, they build your personality. Perfect. And buy good knives. And buy good knives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to uh, 
myself and the listeners today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. You've been a favorite of the magazine for years and years, so it's great to get you on here for a chat. Thank you very much for having us on. Thanks for the continued support. No, anytime at all, anytime at all. Um, the producer and editor of the podcast is Toby Keel, uh, and we look forward to talking next week. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you.